am I a fundamentalist Christian? Now, <clears throat> I like to consider myself a follower of Jesus. How could we verify if the Gospels were inerrant? I mean, how would you how would you determine that? Well, when I say inerrancy, I mean something. I mean that the message is inerrant and that the main central claims of the Gospel, that anyone who's serious about textual criticism with regarding the New Testament has to take a look at this. Bruce Lawn. Let's talk about this idea of um, fundamentalism, okay? A fundamentalist Christian or Christian fundamentalism is defined as fundamentalists are almost always described as upholding beliefs in biblical infallibility and biblical inerrancy in keeping with traditional Christian doctrines concerning biblical interpretation, the role of Jesus in the Bible, and the role of church in society. So the question I was asked on Adam 22's uh, No Jumper podcast was, am I a fundamentalist Christian? Now, <clears throat> I like to consider myself a follower of Jesus, and I asked them, like, well, what do you mean by that? And they're just like, do you take the Bible literally, uh, do you take the Bible seriously? Do you do your best to live, live, live up to it? And I answered to the best I could. But I saw this today, and I wanted to show you guys it, and hopefully this doesn't offend you guys. You may not know I make music, but I got a new song coming out. And it's something I need you to do, but first, I want you to hear a snippet of the song. I went from... Being a porn addict to sharing the gospel with a porn actress who was criticized for being low status by the same OnlyFans who treat us so lavish. I'm confused. I swear y'all thought he did doing podcasts, hot takes. He still can rap. Now, in order to get this song to the top of Spotify, I need your help. I need you to click the link below or go to ruslantothemoon.com and pre-save this song. What is a pre-save? It means that this song will be added to your library to remind you to listen to it the day it comes out. And it also tell Spotify's algorithm that millions of people need to hear this song. So help me promote Christian music that contextualizes the gospel and will help change lives by going to ruslantothemoon.com or clicking the link below. Oh, they got me with their dramatics. You know that a moment cannot be static too soon. I think this is a great explanation for it that anyone who's serious about textual criticism with regarding the New Testament has to take a look at this, okay? This gentleman debating Bart Ehrman is Jimmy Aiken, okay? Now, we're going to look at a clip from their debate and something I personally found useful that could get me in hot water with some evangelical fundamentalists. All right, buckle in. Buckle in. It's healthy to look at debates like this. This is a debate about, are the Gospels historically reliable? Resolution is that the Gospels are historically unreliable. And you might wonder, why put it that way? Well, normally what will happen, at least very frequently what will happen in my experience, is skeptics will come to believers and demand that they prove the Gospels are reliable. Why should I believe those Gospels are reliable? But I think it's healthy to look at questions from both perspectives. And so I think it's healthy, once in a while at least, to have skeptics bear the burden of proof and show why a believer should say that the Gospels are unreliable. So that's what we're doing tonight. So Bart agrees that the Gospels are unreliable, and so Bart must show tonight that the Gospels are unreliable. I only have to show that Bart hasn't proven his case. Reliability is something we all have a gut sense of. You know, when something is reliable, it means it works, at least most of the time. What about inerrancy? It's kind of an unfamiliar term to some folks, but it means if a source is inerrant, it means that it contains no errors. It's 100% accurate. And this is a doctrine that a lot of people struggle with. What do you mean that the Bible is inerrant? When someone goes down and actually researches, researches textual criticism 
Inerrancy in this definition, and if this is how you interpret inerrancy, it means no errors, 100% accurate. Fundamentalist interpretation, it's the exact transcript. And, and people could take this to a radical conclusion. 1611, or you're not going to heaven. You guys heard that before? 1611, or you're not going to heaven? Uh, that's fundamentalist KJV-only people, where they believe if you don't read the KJV that you're not, you're out. You're out. Now, I, 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 I am not a KJV-only person. In fundamentalist Christianity, they have a particular interpretation of inerrancy that's very common that would say the Gospels are inerrant in such a way that they, for example, have a word-for-word -word transcript of everything that Jesus says is exactly, there's no paraphrasing going on, and not only Jesus, but everyone who talks to Jesus or everyone who says anything at all in the Gospels, we always have a word-for-word -word transcript, and that's how they understand inerrancy. A word-for-word -word transcript, okay? A word-for-word -word transcript. And that is how fundamentalists understand inerrancy to me. But there are more nuanced interpretations of inerrancy, and the Catholic Church has one. If you uh, want to read about it, at least at a kind of top level, you could go to sections 11 to 13 of the Vatican II document Dei Verbum. But we've got a question. How could we verify if the Gospels were inerrant? I mean, how would, you, how would you determine that? Well, for most Christians, it's a matter of faith. You know, we've seen evidence that leads us to believe in the Christian faith, and we're taught as part of the Christian faith that the Gospels are inerrant, and so we accept that. But we're not here to debate faith tonight. As Bart said, we're looking at the Gospels from a historical perspective and what a historian could make of them. Well, from a historical perspective, if you wanted to verify that the Gospels are 100% accurate in everything they say, you'd have to go back in time and check to see if every claim can be verified with your own eyes. But without a time machine, you won't be able to do that. And so we're not debating inerrancy tonight. All we're debating is reliability. And reliability is a spectrum. Now remember, in my conversation with Adam22, I talked about faith also being a spectrum, being convinced of something, right? And he's using the same language here. Reliability is a spectrum. Our question is not a spectrum question. We're asking a yes or no question. Are the Gospels reliable or are they unreliable? So how would we determine that given that reliability is a spectrum? I mean, where would you draw the line on that spectrum and say, okay, if a document gets up to this point or higher, it's reliable, but if it's below this point, we're going to call it unreliable. Well, one place you could draw the line is right at the top, at the 100% level, and say, okay, unless a document is inerrant, unless it's 100% right on everything, we're going to say it's unreliable. That's not how we use the word reliable in ordinary life. I mean, for example, most people have friends. I know I do. I assume Bart does. And we have friends that we would consider reliable. You know, they, they tell us what they think. They help us when we're in trouble. They show up for appointments. You know, they're reliable friends. But we don't, if a friend makes just one mistake, say, oh, that friend is, is fundamentally unreliable. He made one mistake. It's binary thinking, right? All or nothing thinking. When people approach the idea of Scripture either having to be 100% reliable and, 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 and word for word translated versus being more of a spectrum, right? This, this, believe it or not, when someone's convinced that the scriptures are word for word translations of what Jesus literally said, which by the way, that's a whole nother can of worms if you want to, if we, if you want to talk about it, you're talking about the Old Testament being written in ancient Hebrew, okay? And the New Testament is written in Greek, Yet, what language did Jesus speak? Aramaic. 
Now, it's possible maybe Jesus knew Greek as well, but from everything we know, he spoke ancient Aramaic. Okay, so they're talking about ancient Hebrew, ancient Aramaic, yet the New Testament is, is written in Greek. Okay, the New Testament is written in Greek. So that means we're getting at the very least a translation of what Jesus said more than likely on top of the manuscripts and all these different things, right? So uh, you're reading a document that's 2,000 years old, okay, that has been translated from an ancient Aramaic language, we're talking about the New Testament, into uh, Greek, into usually from Greek to English, okay? And so that is why uh, it's important we talk about this, this sort of stuff. And so reliability isn't the same thing as inerrancy. So how can we say what it is? Well, if we don't put the line at the top of the spectrum, we might put it somewhere else, like, say, at the 50% level. You know, at that level, you could say, well, if it's above that, it's right most of the time, and so it's reliable most of the time. If it's below that level, it's fundamentally unreliable. Or you might, uh, you might say, I want it to be higher than that. I mean, I wouldn't consider a friend who's reliable half the time to be a really reliable friend. So you might put it elsewhere. You might say, put it at the 75% level or at some other level. But there's a problem, because as we noted, if you want to assign a percentage, like 100%, to the reliability of a document from a historical perspective rather than a faith perspective, you're going to need a time machine. It's impossible to say, we know word for word, this is what Jesus said, translated from the English to the Greek, from the Greek to the Aramaic. It's impossible. You would need a, you would need a time machine, and you would need to go back and hear and no ancient Aramaic. <laughs> it's impossible to establish this as 100%. This is why when we talk about certainty and knowing not ideal words to use when discussing with non-Christian skeptics and atheists, knowing, right, proof, these are very dangerous languages, uh, languages or words to use in these sorts of conversation. Well, here's a list of major claims that the Gospels make. Jesus existed, Jesus was a Jew, he lived in the first century in Roman Palestine, he had a reputation as a teacher on both moral and prophetic subjects, he gathered disciples, including an inner circle of 12 disciples, he was crucified, and the man who put him to death, the man who ordered him crucified, was the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. So how can we evaluate these claims? So what does Bart Ehrman make of these major gospel claims? He says, probably. All those major gospel claims, Bart Ehrman, the atheist leading textual critic of the New Testament, debated James White, has said when it comes to the New Testament, probably all of those claims are accurate. One thing, as a historian, he's not going to say that a historical document ever gives you absolute certainty about what happened in the past, but it will give you probabilities. And so even though he wouldn't say that we have ontological certitude that certain things happened about Jesus, he will say the Gospels are probably right. So what about that first major Gospel claim, that Jesus existed? Well, Bart Ehrman says that's right. Bart agrees that Jesus existed. What does he think about these other major claims? Well, uh, without making too long of a point of it, he thinks that the Gospels are right when they say Jesus was a Jew who lived in the first century in Palestine, who was a teacher on moral subjects, on prophetic subjects, who gathered disciples, who had an inner circle of 12 disciples, who was crucified, and who was sent to his crucifixion by Pontius Pilate. So Bart agrees on all these major gospel claims. You guys see where this is going? So, so, this, so, so one, there's the macro issue of fundamentalism, not fundamentalism. I don't have to literally believe that the exact words that Jesus spoke in Aramaic that were transcribed in, in Greek that were then written in English are the exact words and, and hold to a, a rigid um, 
inerrancy of 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 scripture if that's the definition of inerrancy. Now, but what I say inerrancy, I mean something. I mean that the message is inerrant, and that the main central claims of the gospel of the New Testament writers are reliable and true. So it's you know, and it's not to move the ball the the goalpost. I believe that the New Testament is reliable. Do I believe that there's there's typos and punctuation things and different transcripts and right? Yes, there are all those things. And anyone who's seriously looked at textual criticism of the New Testament, again, go look at the debates. Even James White will acknowledge that there are variation among earlier manuscripts. So this is what we're looking at. Bart, the skeptic, agrees the Gospels are probably right about all these major claims, all these intermediate claims, and all these lesser claims. And that's quite a lot. I would say that this is enough to judge the Gospels historically reliable until we've seen enough errors to counterbalance this. Mm-hmm. Interesting debate. I would encourage you guys to, to consume information like this. I think it's helpful. Um, and I think it creates a helpful apologetic for how you are approaching these conversations of faith, maybe with some of your non-believing uh, family members. When people ask me the question, are you a fundamentalist? I would, I would, I would just need clarity. I would say I am a I'm I am serious about the fundamentals of the faith. I believe Jesus literally rose. I believe God has standards. I believe heaven and hell are real places. I believe Jesus is coming back. So if that's what you mean by a fundamentalist, sure, right? If you mean, um, do I believe in young earth creationism? Do I take every word of of every book in the Bible to be literally and prescriptive, right? Those are the parts where we, we have to then get into specifics. There's different types of books in the Bible. There's poetry in the Bible. There's history in the Bible. There's prophecy in the Bible. There's law in the Bible. There's letters in the Bible. There's narratives in the Bible. There's so many different categories, right? So if you're reading, here's, here's, here's the easy one. When you read Job, Job is not the literal prescriptive words of God to humans on how you should live your life. Think about that. Job, you got a whole book in the Bible, and the majority of Job does not apply to me and you. Why? Because the majority of Job is Job and his goofy, confused friends arguing with Job. It's the back and forth dialogue. It's a narrative. It's a documentation of a narrative. Right? That that is tragic. And it's a part of the wisdom literature. So you can't open up Job and pull a random verse out and be like, oh, what is the Lord saying to me from this? What is my interpretation? You've already failed. You, that's already an L. You don't read Job like that. You read Job for the beginning, the, the middle of it is conflict, and you read Job for the end when God comes and rebukes all of Job's friends. That's just one example. I give you guys other examples, right? Um, and I think when you when you try to take everything as literal, you're going to get into some really murky territory, right? Um, Ecclesiastes, right? Wisdom literature, okay? And so Song of Solomon, that's poetry. That's, 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 that's a romantic book, right? About, about a man and a woman, okay? And sometimes we try to over-spiritualize the, the entire, the, the Bible, every word in this, really? Is it an amazing preserved collection of writings, right, that are pointing people to the God-man known as Jesus and reminding us of our sins? Yes. Fundamentalists, or I would just say goofy Christians, then trying to over-spiritualize everything, okay? And this is what this looks like. They'll take a book like Song of Solomon, which is a book about romance, about a man and a woman, about you read it 
as poetry, as for what it is, it's very romantic, it's very erotic, and they'll take that and they'll try to make it allegorical and metaphorical. Oh, well, you know, you read Song of Solomon and it's really about, it's really about God, uh, Jesus, and the bride. And it's like, do you understand what's happening in Song of Solomon? It's okay that God just has a book about romance in the scriptures. That's good. You don't have to spiritualize it. I know all types of people do spiritualize it. I don't think that's healthy. I think you could take stuff and say, man, this is beautiful poetry, right? And so when you go to Song of Solomon and you interpret it first as a foreshadowing of the gospel and there's very explicit acts being done, I'm censoring myself, okay? Very explicit acts being done that should only be done between a man and a woman, you get into some really murky and confusing territory. That that is how I would like, and and there's people that would disagree. No, Song of Solomon is about man and no, it's about Christ and the church. Fam, stop it. That that I would say is instead of just taking it for what it is, which is a book about enjoying your spouse and pleasure in a marriage bed. Amen. Drop the goofy purity culture and 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 and, and telling everyone that sex is gross and disgusting. Therefore, you should only save it for your spouse, right? Like that. Well, huh? You got a whole generation of folks that grew up under purity culture confused. Instead of saying, no, listen, there's a whole book in the Bible about God designing this intimate act for a man and a woman, and, and you can enjoy it in the proper confines of a covenantal one-man, one-woman marriage. Praise God. You, but you see, when fundamentalism, you get into fundamentalism, you can get into some real weird stuff. Hey, this clip is from our daily after-party stream. If you enjoyed it, consider signing up for our Patreon community for only $5 a month, where you get access to the replays of our daily after-party streams, as well as the uncut extended versions of our podcast, Discord access that's private, and a discount code for our merch store, only $5 a month. And ultimately, it's the best way to help us contextualize the gospel of Jesus using media, podcasting, and of course, YouTube. The link for that is in the description or in the pinned comment. Now, if you're like, meh, I don't want to sign up for $5 a month. I don't need another recurring subscription. Listen, I get it. You could also make a donation using PayPal, Cash App, or Venmo, but but we really want to get you on Patreon. I promise you, the perks are amazing. You should get on there. It's only $5 a month. I'll see you over there, all right? Peace!